I've been in a series about momentum and how you can create momentum in your life. I've also been teaching about things that will not only create momentum, but also things that will steal your momentum, momentum thieves. I literally could spend weeks on that one subject alone. Not only can sin, which is what I talked about last Sunday, rob you of your momentum. Remember David? He went from success to success to success. From a lion to a bear to Goliath to being uh, crowned and anointed, or being anointed rather, king over Israel, then being crowned king over Judah, then being crowned king over all 12 tribes and anointed at the same time again. He went from success to success to success. But from that, you come to first uh, or second uh, Samuel chapter 11, I believe it is. And boom, he crashed because that's when he had the affair with Bathsheba. And he lost all the momentum. And the point that I'm making is, is that sin is designed by the enemy to steal your momentum from you, There are a number of things that can steal your momentum. One of the things that will steal your momentum is having the wrong people in your life. I could preach a whole Sunday about that. You may not think that that affects you, but it does. Amen. Also, embracing belief systems that are negative and self-defeating can cause you to lose momentum. Having the wrong attitudes in life can keep you from sustaining momentum. And put you on the other side of the slope headed the wrong direction. Things like faith can create momentum. But anybody in this room knows that fear and doubt will cause momentum to grind to a halt. The right kind of passion will help you create momentum. Now let's look at our text for today. In 2 Kings 13, 14 through 19, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. I want you to notice this phrasing very carefully. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window, I want you to notice that he's very specific, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you, say this word with me, must, come on, say it out loud, must, it's not a suggestion, is it? You must, it was an imperative, it was a command, it's written that way in the Hebrew, you must. Strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I want to speak today about... Momentum Thieves again and Recovering Stolen Momentum Part 2. Or if I were to subtitle this, I think I, I, I would say, I would call the message this. You ready? I think I'm ready to raise some dust around here. 
Father, would you speak to us right now and let your word impact us. And as I pray, Sunday after Sunday, cause the revelation of your word to illuminate our path. And may we align ourselves with what you show us. That we can then step into the benefit of those things that are contained and promised to us. If we will obey your word. Send your anointing in this place today to both speak and also an anointing to hear. Let me for a few minutes hide behind the cross that they can see you because they don't need to see me. Lord is as perfect as I am. You're the one we strive to be like in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Shout it out loud. Amen. There's a backstory to this, and it's important that you hear it. An incredible revival had broken out in Israel after the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That revival continued and was sustained throughout the rest of the life and ministry of Elijah and gained momentum, that is, it increased in speed and accelerated in impact under his successor, the prophet Elisha. That's something you might not be aware of. For example, did you know that Elijah is better known than Elisha for a reason, but it might not be a justifiable reason? That is that he did call fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. But did you realize that Elisha actually performed twice as many miracles as Elijah did in his lifetime? Two times as many. And he doesn't get the credit. If you were to try to give it to him, he probably wouldn't take it anyway because he was a man of God. Elisha was a man of awesome passion. When Elijah found him, he was plowing not with a regular yoke of oxen, a pair of oxen like most people would or most farmers would use. He was using 12 yoke of oxen. That that is unbelievable. And when finally it came time after Elijah had mentored him for Elijah to be taken up into heaven, he kept telling Elisha, stay here and I'm going to go over there. And Elisha would say, nope, not going to do that. I'm going where you go. And he did that time after time after time until they came to Jordan. And Elisha took the mantle. Elijah took the mantle in his hand, smote the waters, and they parted and he crossed over. And then he turned to Elisha and said, what do you want from me? And in Second Kings, two and nine it was so when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you and Elisha said please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me now you can read that and miss what it's really saying because the Hebrew word for spirit used here is ruach and what it means is The same thing that we use to get the name of this church, Inspire Church. It means the wind of the breath of God. We have been breathed on by God here, and that is never to be taken lightly. It's the same word that is used in Scripture when the Bible said the Spirit of the Lord moved on the face of the waters in Genesis. It's the same word that is used when Ezekiel prophesied in the valley of dry bones, and a wind came, and the dry bones came to life and stood on their feet as a a great army. 
It is the very same word and concept that is used in the upper room, Acts chapter 2, when the Bible says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was literally the the breath of God that filled that upper room. And Elisha has seen something that has set his heart on fire. He has witnessed God move in a way that he never dreamed he would ever experience. And so he asked Elijah, his mentor, to give him a double portion of his spirit. And as Elijah ascends into heaven in a whirlwind, a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire carry him away. And his mantle drifts back down to the earth again. And Elisha picks it up and folds it together and walks over to the Jordan River and asks the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah and strikes the waters? Now what makes what the king said in the text that I read to you significant is he is literally asking for this impartation. He's going to Elisha. And he's repeating to him the same words that Elisha had uttered to his predecessor and mentor, Elijah, before Elijah was gone. Elisha's getting ready to die. And the king knows it and Israel is aware. And and they're all waiting to hear the news for the flags to be dropped to half mast. And so the king comes and he weeps and his tears are literally falling on the face of Elisha. And he's says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, the very same statement that Elisha made as Elijah was carried out. And I guess he just thinks it's going to happen. I guess he just thinks that, 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 that something's going to occur. But when it happened with Elisha, something did occur. And in fact, miracle after miracle continued to happen. And I want you to see that when he struck the waters with his mantle, it became clear that something had just occurred in the spirit realm that was now manifesting itself in the earthly sphere or atmosphere. Can you see that? You can take a mantle and strike the water all day long and nothing's going to happen. You can just keep on until it's wet and you're splashed and muddy and the ground around you's wet and nothing's going to take place. But the fact that he struck the water with his mantle and they split open was not because of an importation into the mantle. It was because the spiritual transaction that he had asked for that Elijah said would occur had just been recognized by heaven. Your breakthrough comes first in the heavenly dimension before it manifests here. I wish I could get an amen out there. Amen. Your healing is going to first take place in the heavenly dimension. Your breakthrough in your marriage has got to first take place in the heavenlies. Your breakthrough in your finances has got to first take place 
in the heavenlies, in your ministry. You want to break through in ministry? Listen up. It's got to first take place in the heavenlies before it is manifest in this dimension. And so once Elisha experienced his own breakthrough at Jordan, he was then able to see miracles of both deliverance and multiplication occur again and again and again throughout his lifetime. A spring of water that was poisonous was cured when the prophet just took salt and sprinkled into its source. The nation heard about it and they took note. A prophet's widow was in bankruptcy and she experienced financial breakthrough at the prophet's instruction and she was supernaturally sustained by oil that began to multiply and fill vessel after vessel after vessel until the last vessel that was empty was full and she sold it and paid off the debt that had been left to her by her husband when he died and all of Israel is now buzzing about what is going on with Elisha, the protege, the the mentee of the prophet Elijah. Naaman is healed of leprosy when he dips in muddy Jordan River seven times. The nation is astonished. A borrowed iron axe head separates from its handle and lands in the water and sinks like it, it was supposed to. Like God created the laws of thermodynamics and gravity to make it do and it sinks and, and then against the force of nature because the prophet gave an instruction it comes floating back to the top and for a moment the law of gravity is temporarily suspended a city that was besieged and in a famine so severe that people were eating anything including their own children was delivered through a prophetic word that Elisha spoke of abundance that is coming tomorrow about this time and it came just as the prophet had decreed that it would each miracle and there were many others were the talk of the nation Israel had experienced What I'm trying to say is an incredible and significant increase in spiritual momentum. And all of us like momentum when it's going the right way. We like momentum in our homes and in our jobs and our careers and and we're fast-tracked to promotion. And we like momentum whenever God's blessing and moving in our lives and the right things are happening. However... All of that momentum slowed down and began to go into sharp decline. Israel lost the spiritual momentum that had begun under the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel and then accelerated under Elisha. And what is significant about these verses and the life application that you and I need to take from them is that they help us understand why extraordinary momentum was lost. Forward impetus suddenly dried up and they began to go slower and slower. If you want to know the reason why, here it is. They had become so accustomed to seeing miracle after miracle that they became jaded. They became acclimated to the supernatural. They became accustomed 
to the otherworldly dimension. Israel's king had lost his sense of what was important. He was chosen by God to administrate the greatest resource in the world. And that's not money. That's not gold. That's not houses. It's the people of God. But apathy affected Israel's progress. They became lackadaisical, laissez-faire. They became apathetic and mediocre. Apathy had developed in the hearts of God's people. Apathy had grown in the hearts of the leadership. And to be candid, that's often where it usually starts. And they got used to living with the supernatural all around them. And they took God's favor and blessings for granted. It was kind of like the two sons of Obed-Edom when they started out from his house. And one of them steadied the, the cart that the ark was on. You remember the story. You get to living with the glory of God and the presence of God all around you. And the miracles and the supernatural. And, and you start taking it. For granted, and the lack of passion that existed in their hearts toward God affected Israel's momentum. And the next thing you know, they were plunging into steep spiritual decline. And this is why that when we read this story, that you have to understand what's going on. Because King Joash is saying the right words. Hello? He knows how to say hallelujah and praise God and how are you brother and, and quote scripture and he knows all of that, but the passion is not there. He says to the prophet what the prophet said to his mentor, but there is no similar transfer. You've got to learn in your life that indifference will leave you high and dry. You need to learn that indifference in life, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your ministry, whether it's in your business or career or with your children. I want you to know that indifference will cost you. You don't live your life being indifferent and and expect to enjoy God's best and God's favor from generation to generation. You have to be passionate about the things that matter And if you don't do well in life, you you might ought to check and ask yourself, where's the passion on, on the register? Where's the needle pegging right now? And where's my thermostat set? Because maybe I've let the passion be affected. You see, passion can get to you. Now, we've been in a, a, a crisis. I told a joke this morning. Y'all used to, yeah, everybody keeps asking me, when are you going to tell Boudreaux jokes again? Because I'm a Cajun from Louisiana, so that entitles me to tell Boudreaux jokes. And I haven't told one in almost a year. Because we were going through so much pain and loss as a nation. I just didn't feel like, you know, I ought to joke around. But sometimes humor can help you get a point across. So if y'all don't mind, I'm going to pull Boudreaux out of the closet. And, and so Boudreaux and Marie were having marriage problems. 
And Thibodeau, his best friend, told him, Boot, why don't you go down to New Iberia Shire and see that marriage counselor down there and he'll help your marriage. And so Boudreaux made an appointment and he took Marie and the counselor listened to both of them at length. And then the counselor stood up and he walked around the desk straight over to Marie, grabbed her, squeezed her in his arms and planted a big old kiss right on her lips. And he turned to Boudreaux and he said, this is what your wife Marie needs three times a week. And Boudreaux said, well, I can bring her by on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, but I work late on Mondays and Wednesdays. Amen. That's not what I'm talking about. You better have some passion. If you want to have a good marriage, hello, somebody. If you want God's blessing on your ministry. The problem of indifference in the king and the nation is demonstrated in the response of King Joash. When the prophet tells him to open the window toward the east, it's important you notice which window. There are four directions on the compass. You don't open it toward the north or the south or the west. You open it toward the east. And you need an east window open in your life. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this building right now. Somebody needs an east window open in their life. You need to get a window open. That's a word from God for somebody in this house. You need a window open in your life where God can gain access. Every Jew understood what that term meant. Open the window to the east. Every Jew would know what that meant. Because when Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, they were driven out through the door that is at the east. And, and it is through the eastern gate that you re-enter back into the garden where everything has been fixed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hello, somebody. The door of the tabernacle faced toward the east. The door of the temple faced toward the east. When Daniel prayed and they commanded him, to not pray anymore he went and opened it, a window to the east that's why lions could not hurt him it's because he had an open window in his life I'm talking to somebody that's hounded by lions right now if you will keep a window open in your life the devil can't lay a glove on you he can't touch you he can't harm you he cannot hurt you hello somebody no weapon formed against you will be able to prosper I need somebody to say a window to the east Shout it at your neighbor. You need an open window to the east. Would you do that? Yes, you do. Not a window to the north where there's criticism. You hear what I'm saying? Some people think the way to get ahead is they criticize everything that's going on or that God's doing. That's not going to get you anywhere. You need an open window to the east. Hello, somebody. You need God to show up in your life. Because if God changes it in the spiritual realm, it will be fixed in this dimension. You hear me? You can take your mantle and what did not have power before will have power now. I'm going to. Thank you. Somebody shouted, preach. I feel it in my bones. The prophet then instructed him to take his bow and notch an arrow on the string. And he said, I want you to shoot it out the eastern window. 
And when the king put his hands on the bow, the old prophet, weary and aged and sick and about to die, leaned up in his bed, reached up behind the king, wrapped his bony arms around the king's big shoulders, put one hand on the right hand and the other on the left. And and when the king released the arrow, the prophet was helping him to release it. Oh, And he said, this is the era of the Lord's deliverance from Syria. God just released the first guided missile. Heaven just launched an attack. Now you take the rest of your arrows and I want you to strike the ground. And this king that is saying the right words and doing the right thing, but doesn't have the right amount of passion takes the arrows and kind of lackadaisically, half-heartedly, hits the ground three times. I told you, I'm here today to preach. I feel like raising some dust around here. He should have beat that ground until you couldn't even see him behind the cloud of dust. When your opportunity comes, you better seize it. You better grab it. You better go for it. You better lay your hands on it. You better have the anointing behind you. You better have an east window that's open. Somebody give God some praise. I know it's been years ago, but I can't get away from uh, y'all going y'all going to think I'm backslid. But I can't get away from Eminem's song. Lose yourself in the music the moment you own it. You better never let it go. You only get one chance. Don't lose your shot or your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. You better lose yourself in something. You better lose yourself and get behind a cloud of dust. You need to beat the ground. Don't be lackadaisical in your marriage. You see, you might wonder what all the fuss was about. And I'm just about done. But it is clear from this that earthly actions have heavenly symbolism. And therefore, eternal consequences. Communion is an example of this. Some people don't understand communion. You're not just taking the elements of communion. You are reminding the devil. You were defeated 2,000 years ago. If you think you got the upper hand, you don't. I just thought I'd let you know, devil. He wiped your face in it the last time. And you're defeated by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So is worship. Worship has eternal significance. Moses is on the mountain. I love this. I just absolutely love this. It is so cool. And while they're fighting down in the valley, y'all remember, the tide begins to go against Israel. And Moses goes, oh no, God help him. Because he's sitting on the mountain watching it. And the tide immediately turns and Israel begins to win. So he puts his hands down. Say, whew, that was close. And the moment he puts his hands down... The tide of the battle goes the opposite direction. And Moses goes the second time. Oh no. God help him. Puts his hands up. The tide of the battle turns. And that goes the right way. Moses puts his hands down and says, whew, that was close. And the tide goes against Israel again. And Moses goes. 
know what this means in the spirit realm, but it's got significance that heaven recognizes and worship moves the heart of God almighty. Elisha became angry. If there's anything that upsets God, it's spiritual apathy. God told the church of Laodicea, I would rather that you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Did you get that? You see, you can take a block of ice. I don't care how cold it is. It can be Antarctica cold. And you can put it in a pot and light a match to the gasoline stove. And the next thing you know, it's turning into water as though it was just an ice cube. God said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. I can deal with you if you're cold. I can turn the heat of my spirit on you and I can set you aflame and I can melt your resistance down. I can cause you to hunger for me. I can put passion in your heart. But you know what I have a hard time dealing with? It's apathy. Apathy. I don't care what God does. I don't care what's going on. And God said, you need. To stir yourself from that. And the prophet got angry and said, man, didn't I just tell you, you must defeat Israel, must defeat Syria, must. And I give you this chance and I even tell you it's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance against Syria. He's already struck the first blow. And what do you do? Like. When you should have been hammering that ground, you should have been like Kelton on these drums. You should have been hitting the ground. I'm closing. There are things in life that you absolutely must maintain your passion for. And that's our job as individuals. And it's also our job to make certain that the passion is for the right and not the wrong things. Because listen up, you will be passionate about something. Kind of quiet in here. I I guess that means I'm preaching to y'all. Is that that what that means? Look at your neighbor and say, he's preaching to you. (laughs) Person on the left side, I'm preaching to them right now. Amen. Amen. Listen to this, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. You don't get all these things by seeking all these things. You get all these things by seeking God and his righteousness. And I hate what I see happen from day to day. I've been in ministry years and, and frankly, I see it almost every day. I meet somebody Who believes that verses like this are instructional imperatives. You know what that means? It means they're commands. Like you, you, you better seek the Lord first. And they miss it all together because it's not just an instructional imperative. It is also an insight. It isn't just informational. It is revelational. 
that if you seek first the kingdom, all of this other stuff gets added to you. You need to stop reading the Bible as though all it consists of is a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. The reason they are placed there is because it's filled with keys that can open up heaven to your understanding and cause God to have an east window in your life. That when you align yourselves with these things, it gives God the legal right to bless you. Now, I'm going to tell you, I didn't always read the Bible that way. I used to read the Bible like, like most folk do, just read the Bible. And, you know, there are parts of it are like, ooh, that's, that, I better make sure I'm doing this. And ah, I don't want to do that. And, you know, and in fact... I discovered years ago that the Bible was the perfect cure for insomnia. If you cannot go to sleep, get the Bible out and read so-and-so beget so-and-so. And you're like. It works better than Ambien. Zlopetum has nothing on the Bible, if that's how you read it. But then something happened in me. And I began to look at the Bible not as instructional imperatives, but as divine informational revelations, keys. And now I can read the Bible. I I dare not read the Bible before I go to bed. I know some people, the last thing they do is read a chapter or two. Not me. I do my Bible reading in the morning and during the day. If I start reading the Bible at night, I will go to to sleep at 5.30 in the morning. I get so wired. I'm like, whoo, did it really say that? Are you kidding me? That's how ah, And my eyes light up. I even tried going to those passages in First Chronicles. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And And in the old days, I was guaranteed my eyelids are going to get heavy. Not anymore because I saw something. I thought, my God, look at that. God ensured that the generational promise that he gave to Abraham would keep going on from generation to generation. And I got so happy I couldn't sleep. When I begin to think about the faithfulness of God. What do you do to get your passion back? Number one, begin to do what you would do if it was already there. Yeah, that's the big mistake we make. When God begins to talk to us. We say, okay, Lord. And we keep waiting for the feeling to come. The feeling. And when we get the feeling, then God will start doing the right thing. Like, is there there any place in this book that said you're supposed to feel the right thing before you do it? No. Because you see, feelings do not precede actions. Actions precede feelings. It's been proven psychologically time and time again that that is the case. If you want to change the way you feel, start changing the way you act. And after a while, your feelings will catch up with you. Give God some praise somewhere. Give God some praise somewhere.
You know why I go overboard? Now it's no problem at all. Some of you wonder, Pastor, why can't you put your hands down? Because I, I got so used to them being up. I don't feel like putting them down anymore. You worship, it will make a worshiper out of you. You read the word, it will make a Bible reader out of you. Can I hear somebody say, that's right? Look at Zechariah 1 and 3. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me. Everybody say return. That's a word for inspired church. Say return. Shout it. Return. Shout it loud enough that our online audience can hear it. Return. Would you do that? Shout it at home. Say return. Amen. Return to me, says the Lord. I realize some people can't come back yet because they have health issues. But some of us, look, you're not going to get anywhere just staying at home when you could be in the house of God. Amen. If there's a health condition, if there's a concern, totally got it. Amen. You know, totally understand. I got it. But look, open you a window in the east and close the one in the north that you open with negativity and criticism and everything else because you're hurting yourself. You're limiting your promotion and return to God. And then you know what the Bible said? He will return to you. Look at somebody and say, God's getting ready to show up in my life. Would you do that? Tell somebody, it's time for you to return. Hey, time for you to return. Amen. Number two, do the things that you know will please the Lord by putting him first. That's part of what returning to the Lord means. And number three, because my time is gone. In the middle of your circumstance... Say, God is returning to me. In other words, be careful what you say. Because you're speaking your world into existence with the words of your mouth. I need somebody to stand up and say, God is returning to me. Favor is returning to me. Anointing is returning to me. Blessing is returning to me. This has been a crazy year. Crazy year. The past 12 months have been insane. Insane. But favor is returning. Blessing is returning. The anointing is returning. Why? I've got a window open in the east. 